Hello, Revelers. It is Winter Solstice 2021. That means that two years of Revel Revel are done. This is the last interview for the year, and I think it's a really thoughtful, reflective way to look at your life and look at the coming year. Uh, it was supposed to be a Thanksgiving kind of an episode, time-wise, and then just life happened and the year got away from me, and so now it's an end-of-the-year episode. And my guest is going to change the way you think about yourself and the world and people who are disabled. So I think that you'll really appreciate this topic and it'll help you reflect on your life and those around you and things that you want to do differently and work on in 2022. 2022. Dang. So please enjoy Tatum Tricarico. Welcome to Revel Revel. I am Lauren Drebel and today I have Tatum Tricarico. Welcome Tatum and welcome fellow sun devil. Hello. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for making time for this. I know you're a busy, busy student and you are at graduate school, right? Yes. Yep. In grad school as of this year. So where did you do your undergrad? I did undergrad at Point Loma Nazarene University and now I'm at Duke Divinity School. Love Point Loma Nazarene. I love that campus. It's like a, oh my gosh. It's amazing. It's People Beautiful. don't realize what a treasure that is. I would just go and hang out on campus. Yeah, it's amazing. And just a very lovely school. I really enjoyed it a lot. So obviously we don't know each other, but we know each other yes. through Jenny Davis rail. Yes. How do you know her? So she does a lot of like disability advocacy work as an advocate for disabled students. And I do a lot of advocacy work as a disabled person. And so we kind of connected through friends of a friend and um, I don't know, made made that connection around disability and like disability advocacy and education specifically. And it's been been a cool thing to talk to her about. And you were at Mount Carmel when this happened or already graduated? Uh, no, I was actually at Point Loma. Okay. Yeah. Um, what year did you graduate from Mount Carmel? Oh, um, 2017 was, yeah, 2017. So you're how old now? 23. You're officially my youngest person ever on Revel Revel. I'm oh so gosh. excited. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I really wanted to have someone who's under 30. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, you <laughs> very know, under 30. Very under 30. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, we talk about a lot of the big life, big picture things. And so I totally want to have someone who's younger's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what made you decide to go to both a religious undergrad university and now into seminary? Yeah. Well, I um, am really passionate about just love and justice and inclusion. And I realized that like the church can be a really, um, really harmful place, but can also be a place really full of love and justice. And so I kind of, my goal 
in life really is to connect with um churches and like to ultimately be a pastor and like create a space kind of within Christianity that honors like the love and justice that I feel like God would want for the world and so it's been been kind of fun to um I don't know mess with my own thoughts and what I like believe to be true and understand kind of like what um I don't know like where I can better like how I can better love people and where God can show up in the world in ways that I don't expect. And so it's been really fun. And like just creating a space of inclusivity in the church has been really huge for me because that's not something that every church does. So one of the things I ask all the time is what were you like as a kid? Now (laughs) you normally I'm asking people who are 50, 60 years old that. So, um, so I will, change it a little bit for you, you know, because okay. you, you're a lot closer to that timeline. So not yes. only what were you like as a kid, but what do you think that happened along the way as you were growing up that got you to be the way that you just explain yourself with your, what your interests are and your goals and stuff like that? Yeah. Well, so when I was a kid, like a younger kid, like elementary, middle high school, I would like personally have probably described myself as really shy. And I think that that is in some ways very much the opposite of where I am now. I think I still sometimes in my head think that maybe I'm a little shy, but I do a ton of advocacy work and just really put myself out there now. So kind of like moved past that. But I think really um, kind of, I, I think the biggest thing was me sort of learning to accept my identity as a disabled person because that like kind of, reminded me of a piece of who I am because when I was younger um, I was disabled but I wouldn't necessarily have admitted it or realized it and so now admitting that in high school and learning to embrace that through late high school and college um, has just been a really beautiful thing in my life like that I think has given me a lot more space to kind of dive into who I am and like have something that I'm passionate about to like advocate for Um, And so that's given me just a lot more confidence in like myself. Um, But I think also as a kid, I was, I was really passionate and wanted to do something to make a difference in the world. And I just didn't know like how to go about that. But I remember being a little kid and being like, I want to do something to change the world. And like, I don't know, I think I still have that running through me a little bit. And I think some of the advocacy work that I do kind of is coming from that. I don't know, that desire that I had when I was a kid. So let's talk about your disability. Were you born with this yeah. disability or, or how did you find out that you had it? How old were you? Things like that. Yeah. So I'm functionally blind. I was born with a vision impairment and had varying levels of vision throughout my life. And so functional blindness basically means that it hurts to use my eyes, but I can um, see. And so I can see a little bit I think it's something like 93% of blind people have some vision. So that's a huge misconception that people just don't understand. But I am considered functionally blind, meaning that I have to function as blind because it hurts to use my eyes. And so I, the pain started or at least got significantly worse to where it was noticeable um, in late high school. And so kind of figuring that out And like having to dive into that identity in high school was a very interesting um, 
very interesting thing and like learning braille and starting to use a cane and things like that all happened in high school whereas I had like more minor accommodations in elementary and middle school and so learning that getting ready for college and then now being in college and grad school with that has been really interesting so would you say that your condition got worse as you got older or was this the natural Um, progression or what happened there Yeah. So I don't have a particular like diagnosis for it necessarily. Um, but I tend, I used to say, I used to actually use the phrase like crash, like during my vision crash, because it was a very specific moment in time. Like it was like basically a 10 day period where it changed, Mm. but I, because I've started to recognize disability as at least a neutral, if not positive part of my identity, I try to use the word changed now. So I'll say like in high school, my vision changed. And that just kind of like reminds me that like my state of being is not worse than it was before. Um, Mm -hmm. But even if like I have less visual acuity or in more pain, like I'm, it is my body and that is what is happening. And so I try to use the word change just so that like I don't know. I'm very particular about language, but I do think it's helpful for me to notice that disability can be like a positive or a neutral thing. And so I don't know. Yeah. So I don't, I don't necessarily like it did definitely progress, um, but I don't have a specific diagnosis. So I don't have like any way to know if progression is a natural part of it or not, Hmm. but yeah. Hmm. Okay. So since you're kind of precise about language, let me first admit that I am clueless. I'm totally ignorant. Oh, so good. <laughs> I I literally know one other person who is legally blind. Oh yeah. <laughs> and you know, talking to him at first, I realized I was like, "Wow, are you really the first person in my life?" Wow. And I, I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to probably say lots of stupid, ignorant things, and I want you to call me out. And educate me, and that will hopefully serve okay. as I'll be the the Greek chorus of idiots in the in the audience. But you know, I, I don't know if it was just my own self uh, obsession or whatever. Maybe it was my generation. But basically, yeah. I know we had kids at Mount Carmel who were in mm. wheelchairs. I know that for sure, and I know that there was one guy who had a limp and a cane. And I don't know if there was anyone with hearing or eyesight or any other sort of conditions that I don't know. I'm clueless. So, well, I think, yeah, I actually think that's a really like important thing in disability because it's not like, it's not just you. So when I was given my cane for the first time, my mobility instructor said, you will be the first blind person that most people meet. Mm. So like was kind of like gave me this cane with this responsibility of like, how are you going to present yourself? Which was a little overwhelming, um, but was helpful to know. And I've thought a lot about that moment, but I think um, because disability is still like disability is still segregated. Mm, it mm-hmm. like disabled people are in segregated classrooms right. um, and segregated like church groups, segregated community programming, segregated housing. So it is very intentional uh, in the systems that we live in that you did not meet any disabled people in high school. Like that is very purposeful um, by not necessarily like individual people, but by the systems that we're in, like sort of create that reality that 
abled people are not interacting with disabled people because then like they would, I don't know, we would be included. Um, but it is really like, it has been wild to me to watch in my own education and in my friend's education, the ways that we are all, um, especially in education, but in jobs, in housing and whatever, that we are like systemically discriminated against in ways that delete us from the system that like force us into homes and into different and into segregated classrooms and things like that. I mean, historically, there's like the ugly laws, which literally said, if you looked physically different, you were not allowed to be in public or you would be fined or jailed. So that like (laughs) that in and of itself. But then even now with different like discriminatory practices, we're still like not welcome in public spaces. And so you don't. So I appreciate you like noting that because it is that's real of everyone. Like we don't meet disabled people. Yeah. Okay. So here's another dumb question. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times when people are talking, I don't want to interrupt. I don't want to even say like, you know, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, whatever, because that can mess up people's train of thoughts. I've noticed, you know, doing this, Mm -hmm. but obviously I think you have to learn more, um, auditorially. What's the word? Yeah. Orally. Um, I saw a post that you put about that, about like having to learn the SAT, like prep for the SAT. Um, and, and so like, I don't even know how much you can see, like if I'm nodding my head, can you see that? Um, I potentially could, but I have my brightness down on my screen because it hurts to use my eyes. So right. Right. My brightness is almost always down. Good. So like currently no, but if I turn my brightness up, yes. So do you have to walk around in life thinking, I'm going to limit things such as brightness or whatever when I can so that when I can't, I can, I can say, well, I'll only have that half hour of pain that I can't avoid for this thing. That is exactly what I'm doing. It's called in disability culture. It's called the spoon theory. Hmm. Um, It's somebody, I forget the name of the person who invented it, but they were explaining to their friend that chronic pain and chronic illness Mm -hmm. um, were like spoons. So they grabbed a handful of spoons and they're like, some some days you have 10 spoons and it takes a spoon to get ready and a spoon to drive to work and a spoon to meet with this person. And then you can balance your spoons. But some days with the chronic pain that you have or the chronic illness that you have, you have three spoons and it takes pain to get, or it takes spoons to get ready to eat breakfast and to get dressed or whatever. And then you're already out of spoons for the day. Um, And so I spend a lot of time and my friends now know that language. um, And so we spend a lot of time managing what spoons we're using on what days. Um, And so like, if I want to watch a movie, I have to limit basically everything else I do that day um, to be able to watch that movie later. Or I could watch a movie with an eye mask on and just like listen to it so that then when I'm in class the next day, I won't be in as much pain and I can participate a little bit better in class. So it's just like all of this. Um, yeah, it's just a constant thought of mine of like, if the lighting's too bright in here for a day or for a couple hours, then like, how is it going to put me when I'm in this place versus this place versus this place? So yeah, it is constantly something I'm thinking about. Wow. Okay. So you brought up movies. So let me just ask this dumb question. So are you, often watching movies with other people so that if let's say you're just listening, they can say, Oh no, you really need to see that part. And then you can take off your mask and watch that little bit and then go back to listening. Sometimes I, 
ideally watch with audio captioning, um, which is like specifically for blind people. And it um, is like an audio recording. So it would be like Tatum moved across the room and sat down next to this person. Mm -hmm. And then the dialogue would be happening. And so it like record, like it says what is visually happening for blind people. So that would be the ideal most movies don't have that, but all Netflix originals do, which is fun, um, and a lot of other nice. like um, shows and stuff like that. So I ideally would be watching with that, but if I'm watching with a group, most of the time, no. Most of the time, I just have my eye mask on, and then I get what I get, <laughs> and if I want to watch a movie, I do it that way, and if I don't, that like that I just don't get to go hang out with my friends. So right. it is a very like weird distinction. Yeah. So you know how you, when you got your cane, the person said yeah. you're probably going to be the first blind person that anyone meets, right? Yeah. What other sort of guidance and training did you get? I mean, how did you go through life being a, maybe mostly sighted, but with some issues to, <laughs> to the condition that you have now where it like, it just hurts so much that you're like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. So I got, um, a couple different things. I had a vision specialist mm -hmm. in high school or in actually all the way through, I had a vision specialist from kindergarten to 12th grade who worked with me all the way through, but specifically in late high school, once my vision changed, um, she like, basically ended up teaching me braille. Um, and I ultimately chose to learn braille, um, because I was like, I want to go to college. And so we're going to, we're going to make this happen. Um, and so I learned braille with her. And then that woman that I was talking about was my mobility specialist. And so she worked with me through the school, um, would take me out like once a week and we would after school go, um, and learn how to ride a bus and learn how to walk through a store blindfolded and learn how to like walk across the street blindfolded and stuff like that so that I learned how to rely on my cane and actually and then also had some screen reader lessons later on in my life um, where I was taught how to use a screen reader which is like the on the computer it reads out loud everything mm. that's on your screen and so all of that took a lot of time but I actually I wish that I had started it earlier I wouldn't have necessarily known that I needed to but um it would have it would have been helpful to learn those things sooner and I wish I had like more time that I could spend on that um but once I finished high school there were just less resources in college and in um graduate school to be able to like do stuff like that um because it was sort of built into the schooling in like primary school so let me make sure I'm hearing you right it sounds like these resources that you had from you know, elementary school up to high school were mm -hmm. built in, but does that mean that they were paid for or did you still yes. have to? Okay. So yeah, they were paid for by the school. Like it was the vision specialist and the mobility specialist okay. from the district. And then Putnam and Nazarene didn't have any of that. No. And most, I would say pretty much no higher education that I know of has like even close to the level of access and level of accommodation that people um, not necessarily get in primary school, but just the level that people need. Like there is really no space for accommodation in higher education, which is really hard. But why? How is that even legal that they don't? Um, well, there's a couple, couple of things. One is that 
a every accommodation under the ADA has to be both reasonable and effective. Mm-hmm. And the effectiveness is for the disabled person, but the reasonableness is for the school. And so you have to basically every accommodation you get, you have to prove that it is not costing the school an undue hardship. It is not of like monetarily or resource wise or whatever, that it's not um, putting you at an unfair advantage, which accommodations almost never do. And like things like that. And so the law is just very, um, very good and very needed, but definitely not enough. Um, So that's part of it. And then also um, kind of like I have said on Instagram before, schools are pretty much set up to exclude disabled people to even get to the point of higher education. So like like you mentioned with the SAT, um, the like we are all taught to take the SAT visually Mm -hmm. so like you're taught how to like mark off the like read all of the questions first and then go back and answer the harder ones or like read the passage and underline the important parts and then go to the questions or mark off which ones you think are the incorrect answer or solve your math problems like physically with a piece of Mm -hmm. paper and I had to do the SAT completely auditorily and that's just like one example of like a hundred things that um like every test honestly is set up that way so I'm expected to score the exact same with like a hundred percent less of the training that every other student gets um because we spend time in class learning those techniques for testing but I have to test completely differently but then if I want to go to higher education I'm expected to score the exact same and then they also have and that's true of like every disability like you could find spaces like that in every different disability um and then they also really push self-advocacy so instead of pushing accommodation and saying that schools should just accommodate without students having to advocate which is really what the law says and what should be happening um students are pushed to self-advocate so the school can say well if you're not getting what you want you're just not self-advocating enough which is really frustrating because then it puts the disabled person in the position to fight for their needs when no other student is having to do that. Right. For sure. It's a a vicious cycle because, you know, I mean, you know, this, I'm sure every Mm -hmm. student always knows that applying for school, applying for scholarships, doing all of that stuff to jump through all those hoops is like a full-time job. Then you add onto it that you have to advocate for what you need as well. And who has time? Yeah. yeah. I, I spend like through all of, even in high school, this was true, but all the way through really have spent hours every day making sure that the class next week is going to be accessible and that I have the reading set up in a way that I can read it for the following week and that we're not going to be watching any videos in the classroom and checking with the professor to make sure that they like are doing X, Y, or Z the way that I need it to be, or like checking with the school and making sure I have the accommodations that I need set up in my accommodation plan. So I'm like, I end up spending like hours just sending those emails and like in applying to schools, spent um, hours calling schools ahead of time. I think for grad school, I ended up calling seven different schools and tried to choose the one that I thought was going to accommodate me best. Um, but there's going to be, there's issue with accommodation everywhere in higher education. 
And so every single school that I would have gotten into would probably be just very challenging to navigate. Hmm. So as I said, you know, I'm ignorant about all this. I'm sure that every single person who will be listening, except for Jenny, (laughs) will be surprised by this, that, you know, these schools are so, most of them have so much money. How can they not have, is it a matter of money to, to throw money at this problem or is it more of a cultural and paradigm shift? A little bit of both. I think schools definitely have enough money to do it. Um, but I think I think the cultural shift is important because I think um, I think part of it is just that the education system isn't set up for disabled students. And so then when you try to accommodate, people think of it as um, like even just the language in the law, that unfair advantage. Um, people think of it as something that is extra, even like the term special needs the needs are not special. They're not, like, if you think about it, everyone needs to read the test. Mm -hmm. I have to spend hours advocating to make sure that my tests are in Braille or audio, but everyone needs to read the test. So the need itself is not special, but I have to access it in a different way and nobody can make that happen. And so even just the language around disability is set up in a way that excludes disabled people and says, what you need is extra. And what you need is more than what a school should be doing. It's like special. Um, So that's why I use the word disabled because it, um, along with a lot of other reasons, but it connects specifically to that law and says, no, actually my needs are not special. I need exactly what everyone else needs and I need access to it. And so that's kind of like, I don't know, it's empowering for me to connect with that word legally, but then also for a bunch of other reasons. But that is like, yeah, it's just wild how like systemically it's set up within the culture of higher education and education in general. So when you get to school, you know, you've Mm -hmm. been at two different schools now, and then you make friends, do you get a lot of advocates who say, I'm going to go and, you know, get a petition done. I'm going to go and talk to this Dean or for you and advocate for you so that you don't have to do so much for yourself all the time. Um, a little bit, I would say there's, a huge spectrum. There's a lot of students that just don't want to engage with me because they don't know, like they like quote unquote, don't know how to engage with a blind student or whatever. Um, So it starts kind of with that. And then a lot of people who will kind of do the pity thing and will be like, I'll be your friend because especially at a Christian school, it's the nice thing to do to be friends with the blind kid. Mm. Um, And so that's really hard. And then there are definitely people, um, I don't know. I say that it's really important for me that my friend, my friends like understand that disability is a part of my identity. People always say like disability isn't all of your identity. So like you have to look past the disability. And I think that's part of it. But I also think that if they're ignoring the disability completely, then they're not understanding all of who I am. So Mm -hmm. being able to see all of my identities is really important. And so like here um, and at Point Loma, I have been surrounded by like friends and roommates who have attended meetings with me and just processed some of it with me. I think that's the biggest thing for me is like helping me process through some of it. But yeah, I, I wish that there was more of that. I think I have a couple good friends at both places who would do some of the advocacy stuff with me, but um, most of the time, not all of the time, but a lot of the time, those are also disabled people and we're helping each other advocate. 
but I think I don't know I wish that I wish that more students were even aware that that needed to happen and would like would kind of take up that fight with us I think that would be really huge and so it sounds like that you can't even have something like a disabled student union because there just aren't that many kids on campus um there are some Mm -hmm. we have I think part of it is really that like there there are a lot of more um I don't know there are like a significant number of disabled students but a lot of students um choose to like hide their disability because it's perceived so negatively Mm -hmm. that it's hard to get people interested in something like a disabled student union. Yeah. I am like very, well, not very, I am somewhat visibly disabled and like perceptively disabled because I walk with a cane, but there's a lot more students in, um, in like higher education that are like have invisible or imperceptible disabilities. And those like, there's definitely been disability groups at each of the schools that I've been at, but they have been very small and very, um, I don't know, dis- disjointed because there's just not a lot of space for advocating on campus. And especially because we're having to do so much advocacy work already. Yeah. We then just don't have time for stuff like that. So I would love to see that like grow significantly on school campuses, but I have loved like the little moments within the disability clubs or disability student unions that I have found. Like those have been really cool spaces. Well, that's good. Okay. So um, as you know, I randomly, when I was at the doctor, was scrolling through Mm -hmm. Instagram and saw that Tammy Duckworth was uh, on the daily show. I don't even know when Mm -hmm. I didn't get to look at the date. So I don't know if it was yesterday or this week or whatever, but she was talking about how there's this sub minimum wage for yes. disabled workers. I, 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 I was gobsmacked. So please yes. educate all of us on this and why, because it just sounds so ridiculously evil. Yes. It's horrifying. So there's a lot, a lot to unpack there. Um, it, and I would say it mostly impacts intellectually and developmentally disabled people, but also expands out further than that, definitely into the disability community. But it is just horrifying. So there's it's kind of a two-part situation. Um, first of all, people, a lot of disabled people are on social security income, which pays anywhere from like $500 to $900 a month, depending on the um, state and where you're working and where you're living and all of that. And so to $900 a month is not enough to live on. Right. Clearly. (laughs) Like we know this. Um, And so that's like starting out, that's a thing. And if you save money over, I think it's $2,000, then they stop giving you that funding. And so you're not allowed to save up money. And they're starting things like ABLE accounts and things like that that are supposed to help with that, but that's very new. And so disabled people max are allowed to have, if they're on social security income, are allowed to have $2,000. And so with the subminimum wage then, if disabled people are working, they're getting paid less. And the more they get paid, the more their social security income goes down. So that's, first of all, the problem because they're not like if they were to be paid more, they would not get even this, like, not even, like, living wage. 
Um, but then the subminimum wage comes in and allows disabled people to um, get paid less than dollars per hour. So I, I was looking at it yesterday, actually, and I was talking to a friend about it. And I looked into it, and from what I could tell, um, and I was looking at a bunch of different websites, and they were all saying very different things. But um, on one like main news source, they were doing an interview with people who were being paid twenty-two to forty-five cents an hour. What? Working at like different places, and the way that they justify it in this like. They have like a law from, I think it's the 1930s that just still exists, but kind of the way that people justify it is that disabled people are not able to do the same level of work as other people. So they shouldn't be being paid as much. And that's just like completely untrue and Mm -hmm. completely problematic because their, like their time deserves just as much pay as other people and they deserve a living wage just as much as everyone else does and so yeah it's really hard to like just watch the ways that um disabled people are like just getting systemically like it's impossible for them to live get a living wage because if they're using SSI their money drops every time they start to work a little bit, but if they start to work, they're probably getting that sub-minimum wage. And so it is just, there's no way as a disabled person in this culture to get paid unless you um, end up finding ways to like get in a position that either works for your disability or that you're able to hide it. And so it's very frustrating. And I hope, um, I hope like as a pastor that I'm going to be able to make that work because there is space within that job to kind of like play at your own risk and do it things in different ways. Mm-hmm. But in terms of blind people, there's some percentage, it's really low of blind people. I think it's like 13 or 15% of blind adults are employed because um, even if you like notice in job applications, a lot of the physical requirements are being cited. So there's jobs that I could do perfectly fine in different ways, but there is a physical requirement of being able to visually read or being able to visually like watch X, Y, or Z. Um, And so if you have that visual requirement in your job application as one of the like physical standards, then that person's excluded from the job. So. Right. Plus it's not like you can just get a an application that's in braille probably right yeah right yeah exactly so you can't fill out the damn paperwork um okay so obviously there's a million things wrong with how (laughs) things are and things work and that the ada is not perfect by a long shot Mm -hmm. and not meeting your needs so it's mind-blowing um let's focus on you a little bit more before okay. we just yeah. get all railing <laughs> against the uh, the machine System. yes so you have siblings yeah I have a younger sister and does she have any eyesight issues nope nope okay so yes. how did your parents adapt along with you to okay now we have this challenge in the house and how do we help Tatum um 
really know. I think they kind of learned alongside me um, a lot of it and like on their own. It is a, it's interesting. There's like a, um, I don't know, a space kind of as a parent of someone with a disability that is like very different from the disabled person perspective itself. But I think they, um, I don't know, they both ended up doing research and especially when I started doing advocacy stuff, they really like supported me in that and sort of like came alongside, but it was definitely, we were all learning at our own pace. And so it was an interesting thing to watch like the ways that like we were all thinking about disability kind of change over my lifetime. And they, they were the ones who were taking you to church. They're, they were raising you in a Christian household. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the theme of the podcast is really about how whatever word works for the person, the universe, God, whatever works through their life stories, you know, um, the things that have happened along the way that, you know, sort of shape you, make you who you are, or just are darn interesting. Yeah. And, um, did you guys ever have conversations as you were growing up about like, why is this happening to me? Why would God let this happen to me or things like that? Yeah. So I do a ton of disability theology work. That's like probably my biggest passion. And so I started thinking about it from probably middle school forward. I remember in, um, in high school sort of asking once my vision changed asking the question of like why did this happen to me and um it was sort of justified by a church as um like the fact that there was sin within the world that like because there was sin in the world um disabilities were a thing but they would all be healed in heaven and I at the time was like okay like that's weird but they made it very clear that it was not my sin itself but just sin in general which Mm. doesn't really make it any better um but (laughs) it was like great and so that's hard to be told as a high schooler obviously and so I didn't like that but didn't know why I didn't like that Uh, and I wrote that this past year wrote an 86 page honors project on disability theology and realized that um First of all, that's not the case. Um, Disability does not have anything to do with sin, as if we're getting really particular, as Jesus says in John 9, it has nothing to do with this man or his father's sin. But if we're um, more broadly, it has been cool to sort of celebrate disability in the Bible and notice disabled people in the Bible, first of all, because there's many people that are healed in the Bible that you read about. And that's kind of the narrative of the church. But there are also many people who encounter God and become more disabled because of an encounter with God. Oh, tell us an example. Sorry, I I can't think of one. So please tell us an example. Yeah. So Jacob Mm -hmm. continues to walk with a limp after his encounter with God, so much so that the um, he is described as wrestling with God. He walks with a limp after And the entire, like Israel entirely, stops eating the um, specific, like, area of, like, some livestock 
to honor the fact that God engaged with Jacob's physical body in that way Mm. and made him walk with a limp. And Paul, um, when we read about like on the road to Damascus, he's blinded. And then as you read further, he talks about a thorn in his side, but he also, what people don't necessarily pay attention to is this thorn in the side that he talks about is also linked to verses in Paul that in Paul's writing that talk about him writing in very large letters and him, he like makes fun of himself at one point in the Bible saying, I write like, you can tell this is my writing because I write very large Mm. Um, and talking about how he has to travel with a companion and talking about how um, when he needed help, people in the area that he was writing to were so helpful that they would have taken out their own eyes and given them to him. Hmm. So with all of that, it is pretty clear that Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus and some of that sight may have come back. Um, Mm -hmm. But there are very clear examples of the fact that Paul was very likely still um, experiencing a visual disability because of an encounter with God. And then also people like Moses um, were disabled. Moses had a stutter and God said, okay, I'll give you an accommodation then so that you say what you're feeling and have your brother speak it out for you. Right. So God didn't heal a lot of people in these situations, but instead just engaged with their bodies. And so it was actually really affirming to, and honestly, the biggest example that disability theology talks about is the example of Jesus. And Jesus was wounded at the cross And then the only picture of resurrection that we have is Jesus resurrecting with wounds. And those wounds are still open. And like it says, like, touch the wounds on my hands and on my sides. Right. And so when we think about resurrection, when we think about heaven, people always say, you're going to be healed after the resurrection. You're going to be healed in like whatever heaven means. But Jesus wasn't. (laughs) So why would I be Um, like, why is this like the cross was a defining factor in Jesus's life and identity, obviously. And in heaven and in the resurrection, it was reflected. And so my disability being a defining factor of my life is not necessarily a bad thing, but is an identity marker of who I am and will be likely reflected in whatever comes after this. And so um, that has been a really beautiful thing. And like, obviously there's people who still want to be healed. And I think that that's really relevant in the moments of healing that are in the Bible. Like, I think it's totally fair to be like, I want to be healed. And there's a bunch of stories in the Bible of people being healed, but there's also space to be like, I love myself as a disabled person. And God loves all of these disabled people in the Bible. And like that identity doesn't get erased. So I've just had so much fun exploring all of that. And so it sounds like you really started exploring it right at the onset of the change. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I started asking questions right around then. Uh huh. And how long did it take you to get to be in a, the good place that you're in about it? Um, it took a while. I was, people kept asking to pray for me. That was like the biggest thing, um, both inside and outside of the church. Actually, I would be like in a target and people would come up and try to pray for me. And originally, like at the very beginning of the change, I had said like, I don't need healed. Like, I'm fine. And people had said like, oh, if you had more faith, you would know that you could be healed. And so that was really hard because I was like, no, I'm like fine with who I am. Um, right. and 
Like, it's not because I don't have faith. And at that point I knew I wanted to be a pastor. So I was like, I think I have faith. (laughs) I'm Mm -hmm. like, I'm pretty sure. And so that was really consistent and really hard. And so I, um, it took a really long time, probably until writing this paper, honestly, this past year, where I felt comfortable thinking of Jesus as anything but healer, because we just hear these stories and people will come up and like really without consent, pray for me and like put their hands on my eyes and put their hands on my head and like pray for me. And so I talk a lot about consensual prayer, which is kind of a funny term, but it's so real because a lot of disabled people, even disabled people who aren't Christian in their books and in their advocacy work, will talk about how Christians come up and pray for them all the time. Like we love our identity as a disabled person. And so we don't, I don't want that to go away. Um, and, and I don't, I actually, I am confident enough to say that I know that God does not want that piece of me to go away either. And so it just is, um, it was really hard for me to conceptualize Jesus because people kept saying, um, that Jesus was healer and that I just didn't have enough faith in Jesus to be healed. And so I kind of, um, I really work through like imaginative prayer. That's really helpful for me. And so when I would like think about Jesus, I didn't, I was like, I don't want to be anywhere near Jesus because if Jesus touches me and heals me, then that takes away part of who I am. But if Jesus touches me and doesn't heal me, then who's Jesus? Like, then who is this like God that people have told me about that isn't doing what they said that he was going to do? And so that was really confusing for me. And to process all of the disability theology around Jesus being the disabled God and being in solidarity with marginalized people um, and specifically with disabled people in these like disability theology accounts, it was really formative for me and really helpful. But I would say it really, that shift really happened in this last year. And that's kind of when I started, um, I got confident enough to start saying no when people would ask to pray for my vision because I they would come up and just say like can I pray for you and I'd be like for what and they would say well for and then get all confused and they would be like for your eyes and I am like what about my eyes and then they're like well for healing and I'm like I don't want to be healed like that's not what I want and so that like <laughs> is really like that's really hard to say mm-hmm. and really hard to do Um, but is, I wouldn't even say it's empowering yet, um, but it's necessary for me to honor that part of my like body and my faith in that way. But every time that happens, I do feel a little further away from God and farther away, like from understanding who God is, just because if that's what people think God is, then that's erasing part of who I am. And that doesn't feel good. So I don't know. Yeah. It's been very, very long process, but really cool to find the ways that um, God and the church can be affirming of disabled people. So I'm sure you've heard this and I'm not, I'm just a statistic in this, that (laughs) I don't really have a problem with Christ. I have a problem with Christians or particularly (laughs) air quote Christians, you know? Yes. So when you say you want to be a pastor, Mm -hmm. um, it, it kind of makes me have take a pause because it's kind of like, Oh, you're going to be surrounded by all those problem people. Yeah. And how do you, how do you have the heart to work with them and uh, be around them and stuff and on and every day, probably for the rest of your life to be the same message over and over. 
Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think that pastors serve a really interesting role in communities. And I think that I, as a pastor would get to, um, I guess I think about, I have a specific pastor who has been like amazingly formative in my life and she, um, is actually a pastor again. So she is still my pastor. Um, but Mm -hmm. she earlier on would, um, had like spent a lot of time in her office sitting with me, helping me through like legal disability advocacy stuff that I was going through um, with my own like legal things that I was needing to deal with because of like disability discrimination. Mm -hmm. Um, And she got to sit with me and like work through that paperwork with me because I couldn't, like I literally physically couldn't do it myself. Right. And to think about that moment and say like, there are no other jobs that you get to like come alongside people in that way. And like, just like whatever they're going through in their life to be beside them and to support them in that is just such a cool concept to me. And I think the church, because of that, because the God, at least from a liberation theology perspective, is in solidarity with people. And so then the pastor's role is to like mirror that solidarity with the congregation um, in all of the like shit that people go through in their lives. And so kind of, I don't like, I know that there will be moments that um, like really harmful people say really harmful things, but I think that getting to create a space in a church where people can feel a person as a pastor and also God coming alongside them is like so worth it in ways that like other people like couldn't like other job positions just couldn't do and I know that like I don't know I'll like specifically name I know that the church is horrifyingly discriminatory of queer people and disabled people and people of color and also really just like most other people um but specifically um queer people disabled people and people of color are often not welcome in church spaces or even kicked out of church spaces and that like I know many queer friends and many disabled friends who were like asked to leave church spaces Mm. and I it's just so important to me because I I know that we can find love in Christian spaces and in God. It's so important to me that somebody is there creating that space for queer people and disabled people and people who otherwise don't feel connected to the church, that they can still feel that love and solidarity of God because that's like so necessary. And so that's kind of like one of my goals. And I do a lot of disability theology, but I also have read quite a bit of queer theology and black theology and um, Latinx theology and things like that just to um, I don't know just to understand where God is working in the lives of those people um, so that I can like be a better pastor and come alongside them in those spaces and so I think it's going to be hard (laughs) to be in consistent spaces that don't allow disabled people and queer people and women and people of color in those spaces as much but I want to use the privileges that I have and the like minority statuses that I have to 
kind of hold space for people in those in those spaces and like feel that love that they deserve to feel I don't know so it'll be hard but it'll be it's been really rewarding when it goes when I do have those moments well, I think that's amazing. And, you know, uh, there's a human common tendency to say there will be good in a situation. And that would be the good that your disability brought out this good in the lives of others in the culture, et cetera. Yes. But do you, do you find that that is hmm, the first word that came to mind was a problem, but I'm not sure I like that, Mm -hmm. but basically problem thinking that's just going to not actually get people to where they need to be instead of trying to look for the, the reason that this happened, you know, in, in your life to make it better for the world. Or is that like that the way we should be thinking? Um, yeah, I don't think, yeah, I don't ever think that like, challenging circumstances are like for the good of the world or whatever um I think that's really hard and like you said like um not necessarily problematic but just like can be harmful in certain spaces but I think that I think that specifically in my case but in a lot of cases people understand disability to be a really negative thing um and it just isn't like my disability yes, the pain is really challenging, but it just is my body. Like that's what my body does. And so the, like the biggest issues that I deal with are surrounding ableism. And really I would be in significantly less pain if there was less ableism too, because I would be in more accessible spaces, but like the comments that people make and things like that are really hard. And so like, I don't want to deny that, but I also do think that like, claiming disability identity as a positive thing just inherently is cool. Not because it's serving some other purpose, but just because it's part of who I am. Right. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. Yeah. But okay. Going back to what you just said about that you're in more pain because of the ableism. Do you mean emotional or do you mean physical Um, as well? Physical. Yeah. Physical. Because if, if I'm in a class and I've like in my accommodation plan, it says we can't, um, like that I can't, well, even currently in my accommodation plan, it doesn't say that I can't watch videos, but I cannot be in a classroom where there's videos playing. Um, And so if somebody is playing a video and doesn't think of me, even though I've like expressed it to each of my professors, then I'm physically in more pain. Or if a church, churches especially get set up in ways that have really funky lighting and really painful like things like even just like flickering candles and like flickery stained glass and things like that. So like literally if physical spaces were, um, if people were thinking about disabled people and just like the bright lightings in churches, like they have like the fun, like contemporary light lighting and services. And if people were just thinking about disabled people in those spaces, in those physical spaces, and like thinking about disabled people and access needs, or if I expressed, hey, this is really not going to work. Can we do something about it? And then they like actually did something about it. Then I would like physically be in less pain. (laughs) Like just literally like it would hurt less if people would just pay a little bit more attention. Okay. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that didn't occur to me. So wow. Every minute of the day, it's like, you have to be (laughs) 
breaking through to people's ways of thinking. It's amazing. Um, What denomination or type of church do you see yourself being the pastor of? Um, I'm hoping, I don't know. I'm hoping to be the pastor of a Methodist church and very, um, I want to very explicitly state on the progressive side of the split. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's currently a split happening and I will be, I think the split, the plan is that the progressive queer, basically the progressive queer affirming side of the Methodist church will stay the Methodist church and the like unaffirming side will break off. So my goal is to stay with that um, affirming side of the United Methodist church. But if that doesn't happen, I could end up somewhere else. <laughs> and yeah, I think I, I grew up in a Lutheran church and there just wasn't space for women in ministry there. They were like, we don't like the denomination that I was part of literally didn't affirm women in ministry. So I was not going to do that considered Nazarene for a little while, but they also weren't affirming of queer people. And so I um, am hoping to work in a Nazarene or in a Methodist church, because then I can have that space to be affirming and be like openly affirming. The church that I go to now has a giant pride flag on the wall and it's a Methodist church. And they have a little sign that says all welcomed, all loved, all affirmed, all ways in like rainbow letters. Mm-hmm. And like, I want to be at that church. <laughs> like I want to yeah. be at that kind of church that does that. What do you, what do you do in 2021 where there's so much polarization and there's so many problems in the world? Mm-hmm. And basically you've got, you know, Christians who were saying, you just need Jesus. You just need to repent. There's too much sin in the world. And then you've got all these other people saying, no, the church is the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I think I likely am not on the side of the church that we think about necessarily. Um, I think I understand. And I mean, even if you just think about like the stories that I've already told in terms of disability Mm -hmm. of like Jesus, I understand Jesus to be in solidarity with marginalized people and specifically the what I'm thinking about is James Cone's book The Cross and the Lynching Tree which is an amazing book and like understanding I don't know understanding Jesus to be in solidarity with those who are being oppressed is a huge piece of Christianity to me and so I just I try to do that and I try to lean into a philosophy of love And like when I am faced with someone in front of me, whether that be in like a church situation or a school situation or whatever, I, I do what I can to love, but I, I am specifically thinking of a professor that I had in undergrad who had said, um, how did she define it? She said, um, to be a follower of Jesus means being always completely for the most marginalized person in the room Mm. and in her life I know that that's mean meant being opposed to some of the least marginalized people in the room which then puts you in a funky position and a really hard position a lot of times and so I I try to take up that posture I try to say I will be always all for those who are being marginalized in this space. And I think that that is a super Christian account because I think that that's where we find Jesus all the time is with those who are being marginalized. And with those who aren't, he's saying, I am with these people. 
I am with these marginalized people. And so I don't know. That's what I try to do. And that puts me in a lot of funny situations, but I'm like more than willing to step into that role in my life as a pastor, however I can. And would the scriptural reference for that be whatever you do to the least of these that you do unto me? Potentially. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if she gave anything in particular, but I think that would definitely be, or yeah, that many of the stories of Jesus being with um, like quote unquote sinners or like people who were viewed as sinners that Jesus very clearly was like being with and then telling other people that they were sinning um, by excluding them. So those sorts of things. Yeah. So you just started graduate school. You've got how many years left? Three. Well, this is my first semester of three years. Yeah. Well, I want to go on record that before you graduate or right after you graduate, I'd love to talk to you again and see how you have evolved and changed and hopefully how the culture and maybe even laws have changed in the next three to four years. Yeah, that would be awesome. Because I'm sure you've seen things change just in your lifetime. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, I think the, um, just even over the last like year and a half, two years with the pandemic, um, disability advocacy has like exploded in a lot of really cool ways. Um, definitely not enough still, but, um, the disability community has just like come alongside each other in really cool ways. And especially in the last 20 years, I mean, I wasn't aware of it when I was a kid, but in the last 20 years, 30, 40 years, they've been doing like amazing things. And so I'm sure that we are on, on the path to be doing a lot more cool stuff soon. So yeah. And I think that the technology in general exists for most of the accommodations, not necessarily, oh, all, definitely. But, but mostly, and of course, 20, 30 years ago, that wasn't there, but yeah. that doesn't mean that the culture and the laws and the resources are put to what people really need. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of it, I think people want to throw technology at it and throw money at it and things like that. And I think it's just like, thinking about particular people. Like I think you say, okay, this student in my class is really like, it causes pain to be in front of a screen. Mm -hmm. So we don't use screens. This student in my class or this person at this, in this position that I'm the employer of, or this person in my life can't like, I don't know, can't read or can't um, like, have a conversation the same way or whatever you just have to like think of that person like it doesn't it doesn't really take much effort when people or even like much like fancy technology or like time or money it just takes like being like what are the particular um like situations of people in my life around me I yeah I don't know it like doesn't seem like it needs to be that hard but no it seems I mean am I being oversimplistic where it could just be like how do I make this work for you Yeah, that is, that's huge. Like, I think that in my friendships has been a really huge thing of just like, there are friends that just know me well enough to know how to make stuff work. And I think specifically in friendships that I have with other disabled people, um, we know each other well enough to make it work. And I had permission to share this story in my honors project. So I'm assuming I also have permission to share it here. Uh But I have a, um, one of my best friends who I was roommates with recently, we would like, sort of accommodate for each other and just like 
ways that didn't make any difference in our lives, but were so huge of like, I couldn't go in um, and sit in the chapel services at Point Loma. So they would sit out with me in the hallways. And then like a couple of them had like um, dietary restrictions. And so like, we would make sure that we were like eating at places that worked for them. And like, one of them was like allergic to um, different scents and like smells. And Mm -hmm. so none of us wore perfume and none of us wore like scented stuff in our rooms or in our physically so that we could be around her. So it was just like, we just like did what it, it wasn't like, oh, this person really needs this. It was just like, we, that's what you do because you're friends with this person. And it did like, it didn't after like the initial, like, I don't know, like getting to know people, it didn't even really like compute as like, oh, I'm doing this really nice thing for this person. It's just like, yeah, this is my friend. Like this is what we're doing. And so I think if it were like that in classroom spaces and in other spaces, it would be a lot easier to just be like, okay, well, like this person's in my class. So obviously we're not going to watch a movie or like this person's in my class. So I'm going to need to explain these concepts more in depth or this person's in my class. So I'm going to need to like, I don't know, make space for there to be like somebody walking around in the back or like just things like that, that like are not welcome in classrooms that disabled people would just need. And like some of that is legal and like has to be legal, but some of that's also just like know your students (laughs) and like know your, um, know the people you're employing and know your friends, (laughs) you know? Right. So, you know, I started off by saying that you're the youngest person and I've wanted to have a younger perspective. So this is sort of like the last big question or theme or whatever, Mm -hmm. that the world is a tough place and, and talking to Gen X people, you know, or, or, and a, a few boomers. I've talked to a few boomers, mainly Gen X people, and then maybe just a couple of millennials. And the millennials are just like, "Fuck, this life is shit," and I don't know what to do about it or how to how to figure out my life and how I fit in and yeah. where God is or where the universe is and where I'm supposed to be in it. So you get to be the voice of Gen Z here. How do you look at all this life issue stuff in in your perspective of uh, the big questions about life? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of us as like Gen Zers are just tired of it. Like Mm -hmm. we know that we're up against climate change. We know that like we were raised in post 9-11 I mean I was barely alive for 9-11 I was like two Um, and we lived like high school and college education through a pandemic and so and like specifically a pandemic that could have been handled if it were handled differently right Um, and so I think we're just fed up I think we're like just stop this and so my way and I think a lot of other um, people who are like Gen Z would be like I'm just done like give me a mic I'm gonna like fight this and be like we're done fix it Um, and I think that's a lot of the like it's it's fun to watch that be the upcoming generation in the church too because I think there is so much homophobia and racism and ableism and sexism in the church and I think Gen Z is like get that out of there or I'm not coming. And I think that that's kind of a cool position to take to be like, 
okay, then how do we, how do we do that church? Like, how do we be an inclusive church? But I also, so I think a lot of Gen Z is just like, (laughs) give me a mic, let me, like, let me go. But I also think that it's really hard to ask a whole generation to be advocates. And I think, especially in a disability place, everyone's always like, you got to be a self-advocate, you got to be a self-advocate. And I completely disagree. I think I am a self-advocate and an advocate more broadly. I mean, disability-wise, there has been this amazing history of activists and amazing, um, yeah, just trajectory of activists and community. And um, I'm part of that. So it doesn't feel like self-advocacy anymore. It doesn't feel like I'm advocating for myself. It feels like people in the past had been advocating for me and I'm joining that to advocate for people in the future. And so I think I think a lot of Gen Z are approaching it like that. But I also think that it's not fair to ask people to be an advocate. Um, and I think Gen Z gets put in that space a lot and especially disabled people in Gen Z are told like, you have to be a self-advocate. You have to advocate for yourself, like da, da, da. And like, that is so frustrating because it's like, no, you should just get what you need. And like, I'm sure that it happens with people of color and queer people and like things like that too, where they're just asked to respond for themselves and asked to fight for their inclusion because we know that the world needs that now, but we're still not there. And so people are just told to advocate for themselves. And I think that's really frustrating, but I also think that a lot of Gen Z has taken that and ran with it and is like, okay, give me a mic. Like I'm ready. So I think it's a little bit of both. Well, really interesting. And um, when you talk to other people your age, I mean, I know that you've spent a lot of time at Christian schools, but mm-hmm. when you talk to other disability advocates who maybe aren't part of yeah. your school you know, yeah. uh, view, do you find that they share your same general view of how, you know, how God works, how the universe works? Oh, definitely not. I think, I think the church has been so exclusive to disabled people and queer people and people like I keep saying, um, but I think it's been so exclusive to people that there's no way that people can like find a hope in a God that is quite frankly planning on sending them to hell. If that's what they're like, that's what people are told over and over. So how do you find hope in that God? Like, that's not like, you don't like that's stupid and so that I think it like yeah I don't I don't blame people in fact I'm with a lot of people in that of like you don't find hope in that God and I worked really hard um, within my own theology because it was helpful for me but I don't necessarily think that's helpful for everyone I think if you're told over and over and over that you're going to hell because of who you are then you need like mental health wise and physical health wise to get out of that space yeah um like I think you need to run from that and like like I said even with disability um people are told over and over and over again that their physical existence is a result of sin and I know people who have been denied baptism and denied communion and denied like a bunch of other things because they're disabled and Mm. like and the consistent praying for people to um, have healing is horrifying. Like to have somebody be like, wow, they're like, I can look over across, like I'm in a target or whatever, look over across the aisle and see someone who looks so different from me that they must not want to live the life that they're living and go up and like 
ask the god of the universe to remove that piece of their identity without even knowing them at all that's like so harmful rather than to just be like wow this person is disabled and i can clearly tell that this space is not accessible to them so like what can i be doing to support them and it's like a completely different frame of mind um yeah yeah i don't blame people and i i think it is important for some people to leave the church because it's been such a harmful place and i don't think that god is only within the church (laughs) i think that god is going to meet people in love in where they are and that like if we're excluding them as a church then we're excluding a piece of who god is so we're missing the mark as a church like i don't think an individual is missing a mark because they're not going to church um because the majority i would say the majority of disabled people and especially disabled gen z people but also just generally gen z people um the majority of people i know aren't going to church not because they're like Maybe they would say like, oh, I don't believe in this, but they're not going to church and they're not believing in God because God is um, being presented as this really harmful thing. I listened to a queer Christian artist um, who goes by the name of Similar, but their name is Grace Baldridge. And she, Grace Similar Baldridge, so it's their middle name, but she does amazing queer Christian music and just recently came out with an album. One of the lines in one of her songs is, these days I believe in Bigfoot more than God because who's he hurting? And that's like, yeah. But then it's beautiful because in this music, they go through like what it's like to grow up in the church and to want to hold on to a piece of God and the love of God, but be told over and over that they're going to hell. And so, I don't know, it's just really, they're wonderful songs and I've just really gotten behind it. And it was number one on the iTunes Christian charts, which is really cool to have an openly queer person be number one on the iTunes Christian charts for a while. So that that has been, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this with us. And like I said, definitely want to touch base with you at the next milestone, you know, when you're finishing school and to see where we are in the world and where you are in the world and what's happening. And hopefully we've got, four years of change of good, positive, progressive change. But, you know, I really appreciate you putting all this out there because a people don't know and B most people who I think listen to this podcast are either agnostic or Mm -hmm. atheist, or just, they would say they're nothing. They're just spiritual. And so I think this will be a very interesting view for most of the listeners. So hopefully you'll get some feedback from people too, and they can follow you on Instagram. Yes. And at at blind underscore person underscore in underscore area, blind person in area. Yeah. And anywhere else that they can follow Um, you? I'm also at blind person area on Twitter, but Instagram is the main one that I use. And I do like a lot of fun advocacy stuff through there and like fun disability community stuff. So I would highly recommend checking it out if you're looking for like information about disability justice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tatum. I really appreciate your time and your perspective. Yeah. I appreciate you having me. So Revelers, you made it to the last episode. 
of the year. Still looking for more people in 2022. Got lots of openings. So if you have been thinking about being a guest, if you think of another person uh, often when you're listening and you think they need to hear this so that they can tell their stories, please, please, please do me and your friend a Christmas present by sending them this episode or your favorite episode. Sharing, uh, leaving a review, posting comments, subscribing, following everything that you can possibly do that you've heard me talk about would be a very welcome and appreciated gift. As you know, I don't make any money off of this unless people buy the books from bookshop.org that are listed on the website. And uh, unless they subscribe, like they buy a subscription of counseling through BetterHelp, that's betterhelp.com. Those two are my sponsors, but it doesn't mean that they pay me. It means that if you use them because I told you about them, then I get a kickback. So if you are not interested in those things, then please, please, please share. Share in any way you can because you know what? Uh, sharing is caring. And this is the season of caring. So I want to thank you for being faithful Revel listeners for two years now. And let's look forward to a whole bunch of new and exciting and hopefully life-changing personal stories that we all get to share together next year. Take care, you guys. Happy holidays in whatever way you celebrate and best wishes to you and yours and happy new year.